Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Phil Stevens, coach. I run Strength Guild, amongst other endeavors. That's about it. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, owner of Extreme Human Performance, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute, and uh, a bunch of other stuff. I'm recording this from Frisco, Colorado, in a parked rental car. So, yeah. Nice. Good times. <laughs> Excellent. And this is Mike Ormsby. I am a father and a husband. I am a researcher at Florida State University, and I work um, specifically at the Institute of Sports Sciences and Medicine at Florida State. Awesome. All right, everyone. We have a little bit of news and mail, just one of each since we have a guest today. We want to get to Dr. Ormsby's origin story. Um, Let's start with this first one. Strength and Muscle Sport News. A lot of listeners know that Mike and I got kind of swept into the Institute of Food Technology and the food science world, uh, I don't know, maybe two years ago. And um, this is from their journal. It's sort of a quasi-scientific uh, journal. It's the, uh, Food Technology from IFT.org. The title is Calorie Counts on Menus, Sway Diners. So obviously, Dr. Ormsby, if you have any comments here, uh, chime in. But it says a randomized study conducted at Cornell University Uh, found that diners at restaurants whose menus listed calories ordered meals with 3% fewer calories. Uh, 43% of the study participants were men. Obviously, the balance was women. uh, And the average age was 34. Uh, And this blurb goes on to say, uh, restaurant revenue did not seem to be affected by the type of menu offered, that is, having some of the calorie numbers. Uh, Interestingly, the reduction was mainly attributed to the appetizer and entree portions of the meals, not to the desserts. Uh, And this went against the hypothesis of one of the authors, John Cawley, who's a professor of policy analysis and management hmm, in their College of Human Ecology. Um, My immediate thought on this is that this may be uh, an issue where we could use a physiologist involved, Maybe. Um, Only in that this has hints to me of what I call the toast catastrophe. And I don't think I'm the only person who calls it this. But a 3% difference in calories, my first question to that is, is this biologically meaningful? You know, and because the toast catastrophe would suggest that if you eat a piece of toast, you know, every day, by the end of the year, you're going to be dozens of pounds heavier And the reason that I question that, and I I like to bring that up, is because it almost assumes that metabolism is static, right, and not dynamic. Uh, I'm not saying that cutting calories isn't helpful, but on a day-in and day-out basis, we've talked about this with Phil before, um, nitpicking and micromanaging uh, calories in the dozens range, it may not really help 
with dramatic body comp changes. That, that's my thought of this. Uh, and again, because he's a professor <clears throat> of policy analysis and management, uh, some listeners, if you're not familiar, uh, this College of Human Ecology, oftentimes nutrition departments are not just nestled in, right, with uh, like a biology or a physiology department, but they're often in a human ecology and family studies and almost a home economics kind of environment. Uh, so that's a little bit of background, maybe. Lonnie, I was going to ask you right away. Was that three? You said just three percent. Yeah. Yes. And it's just that meal. Um. Yes. Right. Yeah. Your so, first question's got to be, what about the rest of the day, and should we be more <laughs> worried about you eating out? Right. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting, I suppose, that it didn't really affect consumers' intake of the dessert. You know, like they're like, hell, dessert sin. I'm going for the sin anyway, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> but it, it very, very minorly affected the appetizer and the entree, I guess. My other thought about this was that, Phil, you're like the opposite of this because they, they go on and they say, this is what Phil would want. <laughs> so they say appetizers contain between 200 and 900 calories, entrees between 580 and 1800 calories. Uh, and the desserts range from 420 to 1150 calories. So, of course, yeah, the lifters trying to gain weight are looking at the upper end of those scales and salivating uh, instead of trying to cut everything. But I don't know. Uh, Mike Nelson, what what do you think about yeah. the 3% here? Yeah, I, mean, I, I agree with you guys from uh, overall big picture, uh, definitely. Um, one thing that is, I think, useful about that is just the overall level of awareness. I remember a client I had years ago, and we couldn't figure out what was going on, and he went out to a couple of dinners for work. So I just asked him what he had for dinner. He's like, oh, just pasta. And then we kind of got into a deeper. Well, he was eating uh, fettuccine Alfredo like three times a week. And so I told him, like, well, just go look up how many calories that is, you know, rough size. He comes back. He's like, Oh my God! I had no idea. <laughs> so I think, from just an awareness standpoint, I think having the information is useful, and that may change sort of long-term behavior. But as a one-off, you know, three percent thing, it's like, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Because even if you look at three percent of something massive, like three percent of five thousand calories, yeah, is what like a hundred and fifty calories or something, yeah. Right. And then your toast hypothesis comes in. Yeah, yeah. This says it actually. Uh, they said it uh, amounted to forty-five fewer calories consumed. Oh, so <laughs> this is a. I think this is a great a time to explain the difference between statistical significance and yeah. biological significance. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, this is one of the things. It brings up a, a, another point. Too, and I don't want to belabor this, but oftentimes, and Mike, you and I have both seen this in the food science industry, I think there's a real need to have some physiologists and health-related professionals involved um, because of all the things that we've talked about over the years, you know, how it's a big win for them to jam a third more sugar into a snack cake, you know, or something like that, because they're very much about the bottom line and selling more of that food product. And I understand that. But at the same time, it might be helpful in a situation like this for someone to at least toss in a comment and this may be the the science journalist here that's at fault and just a little cautionary statement right that well 45 calories over the course of a a two or three thousand calorie day for the average person or 
um, like you said, Mike, a 5,000 calorie intake, like some, you know, overeating lifter, that's paltry, you know. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, it reminds me of the seminar we went to, Lonnie, when we were at the EFT of the was it essential fatty acids in a food. And we were all excited. We're like, oh, they're going to be putting fish oil and stuff, and this is going to be great. And it was, you know, how much fat do you need to put in food so you can put in more sugar and get more right. <laughs> other things into it? Right. I remember that was called Innovations in Fats and Oils. Yes. And, yeah, right. and we're all stoked. Like, okay, let's see how they're incorporating some of the better fatty acids. Right, and um, from a health standpoint, right, and it's nothing. It was about leavening and emulsifiers and yeah, and sugar and more sugar and more sales, and we're just like deflated, you know. <laughs> uh, okay, um, I'd like anybody's input on this next one. A friend of mine, who childhood friend, who's also a professor, Keith, um, he is a competitive cyclist. So bear with me, but he told me about this supplement, um, Optogen HP. And I wasn't familiar, so I went and looked it up. But essentially, it says, delivers levels of nutrients that have been shown in the most recent clinical research to improve oxygen utilization, reduce lactate, and allow the body to adapt to high levels of physical stress. Uh, if I, I uh, look at the ingredients list, which I actually had to dig a little, but there's chromium in here, you know, so meh. Um, there's rhodiola extract in here, uh, 300 milligrams. Uh, Cordyceps sinensis. Now, this is one of those mycochemicals, right, or myconutrients, if you will, that we're going to try to get into this spring, everybody. But there's 800 milligrams of that, uh, again, that fungal uh, chemical uh, that's grown often in the lab, right, but I think it originated on I don't know, caterpillars or larvae or something. It's a fungus. Yeah, so that's was caterpillars. Yeah, in uh, Tibet or something like that. Um, there is 1,500 milligrams of beta alanine, so I can get behind that a little bit better, I think. Um, there's some ginseng, and then there's this proprietary ATP Pro um, combination here. It's got some calcium pyruvate and then some buffers, it looks like, sodium phosphate, potassium phosphate. Uh, a little bit of ribose. Um, so, yeah, m uh, my friend actually was interested in the VO2 max aspect of it. He said he actually felt like his training heart rates were running a little bit lower when he was, you know, doing hills and all the kinds of things that cyclists do. Uh, any thoughts, uh, Dr. Nelson? Let's let's ask you because you, you're up on a lot of, like, the – mushroom nutrients and yeah. is there anything else in here that's interesting to you or what's your verdict yeah anytime someone puts cordyceps in there especially if they list senescence that makes me really wonder because the you know the actual sort of cordyceps that people think of like the one you said from the caterpillar is basically non-existent and ungodly expensive right yeah um there is some interesting data on cordyceps militaris um not a ton but yeah there's some but i always look at that and see did they list the actual correct one um if not yeah makes me kind of wonder a little bit uh the rest of the stuff yeah maybe there's some stuff that happens in combination you know unless it's been studied we can't really say yay or nay but in terms of ingredient amounts and the other things that are listed uh probably wouldn't be my my first thing to to go to but mm, maybe you know i like to see a more studies, at least, on a finished product, and you could kind of go a little bit deeper from there. 
Right. When I see a claim of increased VO2 max, I usually raise an eyebrow yeah. a little bit. You know, that's, yeah. um, that's sort of holy. Unless a ton of caffeine in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not a holy grail thing. Unless, I don't know, there's some kind of erythropoietic effect or there's some. I, I did pull one paper from Panda and Swain. It was in, let's see. The Journal of Ayurveda and Integrated Medicine. So a little obscure journal from 2011. Uh, and they were talking about all the many uses traditionally that cordyceps uh, sinensis has been used for, right? And it's, um, you know, anything from longevity, erectile dysfunction, anti-carcinogen. There's just this big list. The only thing that really looked related to exercise for me was um, – there's a comment in there about it normalizing fat mobilization and beta oxidation, which could affect blood glucose during extended exercise. That sounds indirect and a bit of a reach to me personally. Um, but I don't know, Dr. Ormsby, do you have any, any thoughts on VO2 max <laughs> supplements like this? Yeah, you know, we, we've actually looked at uh, products similar to this in our lab um, in in a strength and conditioning, strength training scenario. So a uh, product that had um, cordyceps as well as rhodiola, ashwagandha, um, a bunch of the B12 and like green tea extracts and such uh, from real popular supplement companies in a strength context. Um, and in that, it was a long training study where we had folks taking this over, uh, I think it was 12, yeah, it was 12 weeks, and we did baseline, mid, and post-testing, and we didn't see anything. I mm-hmm. mean, and the doses were fairly similar, even higher for the sinensis. And um, I don't know what the dose was in the one you're speaking about with uh, rhodiola, but we had a rhodiola dose. It was about 150 milligrams. Um, so sometimes these things are just way under underdosed, mm-hmm. uh, and then we just – once it's all combined in these proprietary blends, it gets real vague. And I get that we, we do it. I mean, we study these things um, because people buy them and we want to know if they're working. Um, but in, in, in reality, to me, oftentimes, just the, the training itself, if you just improve your training, you, you get a, a better response. So just like you, skeptical to see uh, VO2 max changes, although – it's interesting. I think it's neat that people play around with these things to, to in an attempt to to have some improvement because you know why why not? But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't I don't see anything. But hey, I, you know, I tell a lot of the athletes that we've worked with over the years that you know, first my first question: Do you think it works? And if they yeah. say yes, I say, well, then keep doing it. Right. <laughs> you know, it's worth pointing out too. Uh, my buddy Keith is very bright. You know, I mean, he's a university professor, philosophy professor. And um, so we'll have interesting discussions, of course, on biology and philosophy and stuff like that. But, um, you know, he's uh, he's trying not to, you know, um, submit to a placebo effect, I think. And he's trying to be as objective as he can. And he feels like he's running lower heart rates and he feels a little bit better. So, you know, like you said, with the combinations and everything, who's to really say? Um But and honestly, I think the most interesting thing on this list to me, other than the something like beta alanine, which is could be helpful with, you know, some of the higher intensity stuff like the hills and stuff uh, that he's running um, cycling. But the um, the cordyceps sinensis, I think, is could be interesting. And again, I think the the micronutrient idea is really understudied in a lot of ways. 
uh, or it could be studied in athletes a bit more. So, um, yeah. So, sorry, Keith. I wish I could offer more <laughs> than what we're offering here, but um, I do appreciate. I'll tell you, it's a really popular product, though. I mean, I, I've dabbled in the endurance world for a long time as a triathlete, and and many of the athletes that that were uh, training with me or that I was working with were using Optogen products. So it's it's extremely popular. So he's not on his own with that one. Okay. Okay. So that's all I've got for uh, one news and one mail. Let's talk about uh, you, Dr. Ormsby. Let's talk about your origin story and how you uh, got into what you do. I don't want to pigeonhole what you do, as we said before we hit the record button, that you know your, your sole focus, of course, is – uh, t- the uh, timing of eating and the, the biological, the chronobiology of eating and nutrition. But um, obviously there was a beginning to all this. Was it athletic? Was it academic? Uh, what's your origins here? <laughs> yeah, I'd I love to share that story because it's, it's, to me it was um, probably like some of your other folks you've had on and you guys as well. It's uh, uh, started in athletics, you know, growing up playing every sport possible. Um, at some point, you realize it, you, you can try to do this at a higher level. So I went to to college and and played ice hockey was my was my focus, and I was just starting to take some exercise science courses at that time. Um, had a faculty member in undergrad that just completely motivated me and um, really sparked an interest. And then I realized I wasn't going to be a professional hockey player and wanted to stay involved in athletics and sport and performance. Um, but at the same time, I had a heightened interest. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, Bill Phillips put out a book a long time ago called Body for Life. Okay. Uh, yep. And and I read that as an undergrad and was like, I loved it. And I didn't know, you know, there are a bunch of half-truths and things now that you look back at some of it. But there are some, some tidbits of information in there that just really motivated me. And then there was a video they put out alongside this competition. People were trying to win Ferraris by, by getting really – really fit and you know in just the best shape of their lives it was called body of work that sort of accompanied that book and um and i was in man i was just in and i started doing research as a senior in in, uh in my bachelor's program at skidmore college uh with paul arciero who's a big researcher himself and um he just kind of got me on this on this path um so yeah it was a sports origin then it moved to I was dabbling in the research world, and we started our first project that was looking at um, caffeine and ephedrine combinations when we could give people ephedrine, um, which was which was a lot of fun. So that was like my first introduction to it. And then uh, from there, we kind of carried on. Um, I was hired on after my bachelor's to to be a uh, like a research assistant in the lab of Dr. Arciero for a year, and so that kind of just got me moving and thinking critically about research and in some different ways and then, you know, carried on through through grad school. And I wanted to go to places that um, I was fortunately mentored really well and was told to go for the research and for the mentor, not necessarily for the school or their school name or, or whatever. So I ended up in South Dakota from there working with Matt Vukovic, who had just come off a stint um, as the science director for EAS, which obviously – is gone now, but was a huge uh, company for a long time. And so I was working for him, trying to learn about supplements and, and how it might work for performance of all kinds of um, different angles. And then I had a just heightened interest in this fat metabolism. 
area. So you kind of fast forward and I was out of athletics my uh, myself being finished with my college career. And I think like many folks, you start to figure out how can you stay competitive? Because I was I was just dying, not not having an outlet for that. So um, that turned to academics, trying to do the best that I possibly could. And then it turned to um, kind of bodybuilding esque lifting style. So I started to train heavier and heavier, trying to uh, um, just get the physique sort of dialed in how I wanted to. Um, One thing led to another really was a mentor of mine who was riding bikes a lot and and I said, you know, I, I can leave early on a Friday and go ride bikes instead of staying here. So I started riding a bike. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, got into triathlon and long distance, uh, competed in a couple half Ironmans over the years as well. Just kind of kept my interest. And honestly, when I teach students, it, it helps me relate really well if I'm in a race side by side with them or if, um, you know, I can talk about an event that I just did or that's coming up. It just makes things pretty relatable. Um all right, so so then I get into the timing issue, and I secured a position at Florida State, and I'd always had an interest in, um, and pr- probably just because I did it uh, in pre-sleep feeding, so um, eating eating before bed. Like I looked at the most fit people on earth that I knew, so my my friends and colleagues and people I was working around who were either bodybuilders or athletes ate right before bed. Or woke up specifically to eat so they could continue to hopefully be in this hypertrophy mode while they were sleeping. Many of people would wake up in the middle of the night and have a, a protein shake they had already mixed up or sometimes even full meals. And then we had this sort of dichotomy because at the same time the show Biggest Loser was coming up strongly. And so you have the personal trainers who were on that show saying don't eat after 7 p.m. You know, there's a cutoff time. Stop eating. Um, you know, we, we know metabolism slows at that time. It's the worst thing you can do to eat after a certain period of time. And so I saw this 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 huge um, dichotomy and opportunity. And so we jumped into this research realm um, and environment around 2010, 2011 is when we ramped up our studies on pre-sleep feeding and kind of going back through all of the literature, which I think we'll talk about later today, um, about what has been done, what were the problems, why do people think there's a cutoff time when they can't eat anymore, and then how does that work in different populations? And we started studying it in everybody. So very fit individuals, men and women, obese individuals, and just to see how that period of time pre-sleep affected various aspects of metabolism, uh, particularly fat metabolism, um, uh, performance in some ways we started to get into performance now and then right about the same time a colleague of ours um, and a huge researcher Luke Van Loon uh, in the Netherlands was coming out with papers at the exact same time so we would kind of went back and forth in many publications since 2012 um, which led to some great uh, presentations we we co-presented at ACSM um uh, on two occasions, once I was with him, one time he couldn't make it. And I presented with Jorn Trommelin, one of his students, mm-hmm. um, on this particular topic. So it gained a ton of interest. And that was kind of our our biggest window that people were hearing about. We also did a lot of the timing work um, when we were looking at these supplements that I was mentioning before, various multi-ingredient supplements, um, caffeine-based supplements, uh, timing pre-post exercise, and then ironically we had a few studies we'd already done where we were feeding people 
um, protein shakes before they went to sleep as part of the protocol, but that wasn't the aim of those studies. So we can, you know, now looking back, go go back to those data and, and see, yeah, we still fed people pre-sleep and it worked out in terms of uh, helping, for example, total protein intake in the day. Um, and, and it really just turned into an avenue that was, I was just lucky. It was a niche that was unstudied. We got our foot in the door first. So we kind of became sort of the lab that was doing doing that kind of work. And then Luke's work kind of backed up what we were doing more on the muscle protein synthesis side. So from his work on muscle and our work on fat and metabolism, um, we sort of merged all these these things into a pretty good story now and and um, rationale for eating uh, specific things before before going to bed at night. Gotcha. Um, so that's kind of my nutshell story. And uh, yeah, any I can add anything else if, if, if you want me to. Just one more thing before we go to break. Uh, has this timing concept uh, affected the way you eat personally? Uh, performance physique, well, right? Something you learned in the lab. Are you like taking it to heart yourself since we're really focused on you right now? Yeah, but more than anything, it backed up what I was already doing. I was the guy eating at night, so I and and I didn't see a, an issue with it. So, you know, from an end of one saying, "All right, I'm either I'm having eggs or cottage cheese," that was just what I was eating, or a shake, a protein shake, or something before bed is what I just typically had because I was hungry, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to not eat, especially as an athlete. It's pretty ridiculous to think that um, you should cut off eating periods when you're hungry and you need to perform the next day. So. So for me, it just backed up what I what I've always been doing, and so from the naysayers years ago, like, hey, you shouldn't be eating that. I'm, now we have data to sort of say, hey, we had we actually had a a good idea back way back then, and so did millions of people before we got on the train. No, there was just no research on it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, everybody, let's go to break. When we come back, we're gonna continue to talk with Dr. Ormsby about this concept of eating before bed and other times of the day. I've got a couple of questions and um, we'll be right back. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming 
and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. It's Phil and Mike and Lonnie, and we have another Mike with us, Dr. Mike Ormsby, uh, talking about his research and others on timing of uh, food and nutrients throughout the day. But I want to bring Phil on this first uh, because I know you when you eat as much as you do and some of your team, um, it probably feels like you're always eating. Uh, yeah. Is that the approach that you cover these timing issues by just eating all the time? Or do you keep timing in mind, like either peri-workout or before bed? Do you eat in the middle of the night, like a protein drink, uh, anything like that? All of the above. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with me, uh, we have a joke around here. It's like this time of year, because I'm getting Friday for a meet, my wife wakes, makes midnight cookies. Uh, I oh. wake up in the middle of the night and I grab something. So. So it might be midnight pizza, midnight cookies, midnight whatever. Um, you know, I'll wake up, go to the bathroom, I'll grab something to eat. But that's the nature of the beast when you're trying to be 290 pounds and squat 800 plus. Yep. So yeah. <laughs> it just happens. So, um, and then with my athletes, I guess it depends. I mean, many of my athletes are heavier weight class, um, but it depends on where they're at and, and what we're looking to do. But definitely, I mean, there's a uh, there's an emphasis on what we eat before a session more than there is what we eat after. Um, We're definitely paying attention to, you know, we want to have our nutrition in line for that training session. Um, So we get a good training session and then after just kind of happens. But at the same time, you know, usually you have a training session 24 to 48 hours later. So you're going right back to thinking, okay, now I got to get ready for that next one. So, uh, you know, there's never really a break. Uh, a break there, but um, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I when when you're putting in the calories, we are. I mean, you don't have time to take a a, a lot of time to take like a, a 16 hour fast. You know, <laughs> when, right. you're, when you're talking guys that are, I mean, my average guy's 242 and on up to super heavy. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're we're dealing with with big strong athletes. So yeah. It, it would make a lot of sense, I guess, to walk around with a, a timer and obsess over <laughs> over things when you're just every hour block is another chance to shove something in your pie hole. You know? Yeah, and it's just, I mean, with me, it's easy because I do most of my work. Uh, you know, I, I'm in a situation where I can constantly walk through some type of kitchen, and I just grab something. Anytime, yeah. I, anytime I go through, I just grab <laughs> yeah, and then I'll have my regular meals. Um, yeah. Anytime I'm heading into the gym, I will go grab something on the way. So, I mean, it's just that that's that's what I need to do 
to get me where I need to be right now. It does bring up the idea. I mean, there's a real practical side to a lot of this stuff, you know, with how available are meals. You know, not everybody is walking through a kitchen with with what they need and, you know, and that kind of stuff, too. So there's a practicality, I imagine. Yeah. And I have other people that are like out on the road working, you know, blue collar jobs all day. A little harder for them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They can't just cut away and eat anytime they want. Yeah. So we have to adjust for that, and maybe they have bigger meals. Um, me, personally, I found out for me, I, I eat at night, but I don't eat really big because then I don't sleep very well at all if I really cram something in. Mm-hmm. So I try and eat bigger earlier in the day, and then at night, yeah, I eat, but it's not huge So because okay. then I tend to sleep better, and sleep's pretty important. So Right, yeah. No, I, that, <laughs> that is a balance, isn't it? I, the last yeah. time I competed, I usually get up about halfway through the night to go pee, and I usually yeah. had a, a little protein drink like next to the bed, and I would just kind of slam it because I didn't want to prepare and eat something yeah. at 2 a.m., you know, because mm-hmm. uh, sleep is important. Yeah. Um, so let's ask Dr. Ormsby, um, any any uh, data that you're familiar with about, you know, that otherwise fasting period, I mean, how do you deal with that either right before you hit the sack or even – consuming something halfway through an eight hour block, you know, in the middle of the night. Uh, Mm -hmm. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that, like you said, the real, real practical approach, and it's still a study that has not been done. It's kind of been on our radar for a while um, is to actually see, I mean, if we, my thought is if we can get somebody dosed up pretty good with certainly a protein bolus and, and then, you know, getting carbs and fats where we need based on the goals um, pre-sleep, as long as it doesn't disturb their actual sleep, as as Phil mentioned, um, does can that outweigh long term the benefits of setting an alarm, let's say, and waking up in the middle of night and then interrupting sleep um, in that manner? So I think it'd be really interesting to see if we could, you know, have let's say two groups and one of them we have waking up in the middle of the night purposefully to have the same calorie load, nitrogen load, et cetera, versus having that before going to bed. And then looking really more directly at the sleep quality uh, and quantity that that comes from that. Um, obviously, that's really hard to design because, as everyone mentioned, it, it, uh, you sort of naturally get up to pee, and we can't control that. So, mm-hmm. so if someone's in the group that's having pre-sleep and they happen to wake up anyway, and then our sleep's a little bit different, but still would be interesting to measure and give real practical advice to people if if it turned out that. Um, getting that load in pre-sleep was somehow more beneficial than waking up in the middle of the night to do it. I don't know that that's the case. I just, from a sleep perspective, I think we've mentioned so far how important that is. As long as we can uh, make sure that's optimized, then I think getting the the calorie and protein load in at either of those times would be pretty much appropriate. Um, And that actually led to some differences in our study designs. Our original work, uh, 2010, 11, 12, we started – um, just having people record how they were sleeping. So they just would write down how many hours they slept and we would report that. Um, and then we came in the reviewers and other folks practical wise are like, yeah, you got to measure that better than you are. Um, so then we started working with um, fatigue science and we use their sleep bands now on all of our night studies. And we um, have those on uh, every time either they're sleeping at home in some of our studies, sometimes they actually sleep in our, in our lab and we'll we'll have those sleep bands on them to make sure that we're not influencing sleep negatively by any of the factors. Sleeping in the lab could do it itself, mm-hmm. or from what we're feeding them. Um, and I think, like Phil mentioned, 
the priestly meal that I'm talking about that we're, that's been studied is very small. And we're talking 150 to 250 calories max that's been studied so far in the things that are showing either a benefit or no harmful effects. And so you kind of have to state it that way because much of the research that we're pr- producing is showing no harmful effects. So it's not affecting fat metabolism at all. It's mm-hmm. not blunting it one bit by mm-hmm. having 150 to 200 calorie protein load pre-sleep does not blunt lipolysis. And we put microdialysis probes in their bellies. I mean, we're measuring this stuff uh, about the best way you can possibly do it other than tracers, which we're not using um, at the moment. And, you know, I think that uh, there are some real, real benefits when you when you look at it that way. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, if it's primarily protein, uh, it is a good question, though, because I used to think about that, too. Like if I'm getting let's say when I did get up in the middle of the night, I slammed 30 grams of protein or something like that. Is the insulin response enough to blunt the lipolysis for the, you know, the next couple hours Mm -hmm. or something like that? So it's a good question. You know. Yeah, and that's where we were with it, and in different populations too. We, one of our acute studies, we were, this one was in obese women. We found that it did raise insulin enough, enough that we had, you know, it was as a major finding. Um, what was interesting was that particular study was we did everything in a one bolus, one night of the drink, and we measured everything overnight and the next morning. And those same people we had then trained with us for four weeks, which was very short term, but they were still. Um, training three days a week with us for that four-week period just the exercise alone abolished that in, that insulin raising effect um and, and anything on the homa irs mm. insulin resistance that mm. we saw so so in these obese women if they were exercising just three days a week the insulin that we thing that we saw acutely before they started exercising went away entirely that is actually yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it is, Mike. You and I we've talked about that recently. That very yeah. fit people, it, it, they normalize so well, <laughs> you know that it's hard to it's hard to get um, it's hard to see different interventions start to take place when someone is training their butt off, you know, because it kind of overrides so many other things. Yeah, uh, m- maybe that's that's it. Let me ask you something, yeah. Mike. Uh, Mike um, Nelson, this time. Um, Back in the 90s, you and I have talked about this before, but there used to be this concept in clinical nutrition of gut rest, you know, that you've got yeah. to actually leave your your intestinal tract alone essentially for a few hours and allow some rest in order to optimize what either absorption or, you know, digestion, whatever. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Like if you're going to eat in the middle of the night, you're going to eat right before bed, something like meat or casein or something a little slower. Um, you're not really providing gut rest. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, from what I've seen, um, I don't think there's probably too much to that. Mm-hmm. The caveat I would add though, is you gets into the whole intermittent fasting and fasting windows and possible autophagy and all sorts of stuff. But I've seen that anecdotally, the people who report that they feel better doing that anecdotally over the years when we start playing with the amount and types of food they're eating, it's usually the fact that they're removing something that was some type of irritant to them, whether they had a you know slight gluten thing going on, sensitivity, whatever word you want to associate with that, or some other food that just generally didn't agree with them. By virtue of them fasting, right, they're removing everything. So they get that kind of benefit where they feel better. 
But just in the cases I've worked with people over the years, when we've kind of played around with that a little bit more, it didn't seem to be as much of the the um, food per se as possibly different types of food. But I always wonder about that if when I look at different types of research, even on fasting and especially as you start getting into different, you know, pathologies and clinical populations, you know, is it the fasting itself? Is it the caloric restriction? Is it that you're just removing something that maybe was an irritant or things that they couldn't handle as well in that specific population? So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It does make sense. I mean, whether it's eight hours all night long or it's purposeful intermittent fasting where you're skipping a whole day or something like that. Um, uh, Dr. Ormsby, any thoughts on that idea of, you know, because I agree with you, Mike, actually, that I, I don't think a lot really panned out with that whole gut rest yeah, idea. I haven't seen much. But. Well, look at guys like you, Phil. I mean, the mm-hmm. constant flood of food coming yeah. through, it doesn't seem to have any immediately deleterious effects, you know, because mm-hmm. it, it just keeps coming. Um, yeah. And if the gut needed hours or many hours of rest in between because we evolved as hunter-gatherers or whatever, then I would think that you and your team would would have some kind of problems on some level. You know? Just a very successful hunter. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to the top of the food chain. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but, Dr. O, what do you think about this idea? Yeah, I agree with, I agree with you guys. I haven't seen much on it, and we've – you know, studied extensively. I'm, you know, aware of the concept. I think, in theory, you if you didn't look at any data, you could kind of convince yourself that 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 kind of makes sense. You know, maybe we should give it a rest from time to time. But um, there's, I haven't seen any data that panned out, and nothing that yeah. I would, you know, put a a claim on or even a a caveat to any of our work, saying, well, maybe you need to worry about gut rest. We've never encountered that at all. Yeah, I, the the only. I was exposed to that because of NG tubes, you know, and people getting nasogastric feedings yeah. like constantly in the hospital and stuff like that. And I, I can imagine some clinician at some point saying, is this a good idea to constantly trickle this in or, you know, or should we do this in more boluses or, you know, what's the best approach? Stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just kind of related, uh, Mike Nelson, you were saying maybe depending on what foods they are, I think that's important to discuss sort of in this realm because, uh, what we're talking about in 99% of the work that we've done or that Luke's done is is with protein shakes. I mean, literally, and most of it's casein. Casein protein shakes pre-sleep for that sort of trickle effect, uh, which, by the way, may or may not be relevant at night, <laughs> which is something else that's kind of neat. But, you know, we're starting to look now at Whole Foods recently. Just the end of last year, end of 2018, we published a paper that were people having cottage cheese pre-sleep. So the first kind of whole food scenario, as opposed to just straight liquid, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're looking into other things to take before sleep now, other than just protein. And honestly, in, in one of our um, upcoming uh, projects, we're going to flip it entirely and try to try to really boost um, carbohydrates instead of protein. And that's more than an endurance study. And then look at morning performance, which is when a lot of endurance people do their races mm. first thing in the morning. Um, instead of having to get up and eat something pre-10K or even half marathon where elite people will not eat before those, mm-hmm. um, kind of a different scenario. So I think that's coming. We're actually in the middle of the data collection now on a study where we're finally looking at uh, vegetable, you know, plant-based proteins versus animal-based proteins to see if there's any difference in recovery, hmm. taking it free sleep uh, over 72 hours in um, older fit 
individuals. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, um, and you had mentioned that maybe the trickle effect doesn't matter. And I think it was either you or me. It was uh, Dr. Van Loon had talked about looking at whey protein, which we all consider as kind of a fast protein mm-hmm. uh, pre-sleep and its yeah. effects compared to casein. Right. Yeah, we, we're, oh, as far as I know, we're the only ones so far have looked at whey versus casein versus maltodextrin versus uh, non-caloric placebo in, in some of our studies. Um, and it depends on the response you're looking for. And those studies, those are our original designs. Um, I was interested out of the gate in terms of weight casing and in some of the outcomes like resting metabolic rate and some stuff that was um, fairly minor adjustments, non-significant trends that kind of looked interesting but weren't statistically significant. There were no differences between whey and casein in, in those trials. And I spoke with Luke about it. Uh, and we were trying to figure out in any of his trials, and they looked a little bit at, at some of the whey derivatives and some of their early work too. And we weren't sold at that point that there were any differences when you're laying down, when you're supine and when the mm. gut acidity changes a little bit in the evening, that the differences between whey and casein that you see during the day may s- start to go away at night. But I will say I still go casein dominant because of our the fat metabolism side, not necessarily the muscle side, but the fat side. And so our data using casein versus a placebo, like literally having nothing, no differences in lipolysis. So you have oh. a 150, 200 calorie dose that does nothing to insulin and does nothing to lipolysis. So you continue. So you know, my students will look at that and be like, oh, man, nothing happened. And I look at it and say, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you can eat and you still keep burning fat all yeah. night long. I mean, that was a pretty good finding. And that one we've only seen with casein. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Just uh, And listeners, uh, or Dr. Ormsby, if you can clarify for listeners. So the idea of laying down is because it has to, something to do with casein clotting in the stomach and then the, the gastric emptying might differ versus running around during the day. Is that, is that the idea? Yeah. We, I mean, we're, we're not actually sure, but just laying down versus standing up and all the movement might change how the way casein sort of um, kinetics work in terms of absorption into the bloodstream. And the, there's small pH changes that potentially could have an effect on how fast or slow those types of proteins come out of the gut. That work, as far as I know, hasn't been done, or I haven't, I haven't um, come across it specifically looking at those two types. And I think practically, it, that's pretty. That's a lot of detail there. You know, yeah, someone yeah. Um, like Phil's saying is, in Phil's circumstance, just eat. I mean, just eat. Like it doesn't really matter. But, but uh, in this case, you're looking at nuances of it, and someone who might be looking to. Um, continue burning fat, particularly people just getting into resistance training or using it as a mode to to lose fat, not for a goal of squatting 800 plus pounds. Um, you know, then then maybe this is something that's more a- applicable to those people. Right. I mean, we do have listeners that are either fitness competitors or bodybuilders, right? And they want to they want to hold on to every ounce of muscle mass that they possibly can. And it sounds like casein. <laughs> is not a bad idea, right? Because it's not going to blunt the fat loss efforts over there in the middle of their diet, you know, 20-week diet, but it might yeah. actually provide the amino acids that their muscles need during the night. Is that fair? 
Yeah, yeah, it is fair. And I, the last study, the one that just got tons of media was the cottage cheese study. And that was in um, resistance trained women. So they were very fit women who were in that study. And the cool part about that one is we literally went to our local supermarket, bought a cottage cheese off the shelf, sent it to Covance and had them make an identical powder to what was in that cottage cheese um, plastic container. And so when they when it came back to us, we had them in a crossover design, they had the cottage cheese dose in one at one time. The next time they came in, they had the identical thing, but in liquid form. So now we're getting at liquid versus mm. semi-solid. Hmm. Um, and then the third time they had a placebo. And so I liked that design that we did because it was real practical and, and there was no differences between the two. And so that let us give people options. Well, you can have this casein shake and essentially it was about 30 grams of protein casein and about 10 grams of carbohydrate because it was actually cottage cheese mm-hmm. um, in the dose that we gave. And even in Luke's work, the the one that get, got them a lot of attention was the, um, uh, they did, I think it was 12 weeks and it was a, a dominant casein dominant, like 27 grams or so, but it also had carbohydrates in it. And it was in fit men resistance training over 12 weeks. And they just simply added a protein shake before bed like that with carbohydrates in it, uh, pre-sleep for, for that entire study. And they saw Differences in performance, in meaning strength uh, and power, and they also saw differences in um, uh, cross-sectional area of the muscles that they looked at and body composition. And so that got a lot of press as well. And the biggest thing people started saying after they saw those was, well, is it because they took it before bed or is it just they, they just had more protein in their diet than the other group? Um, and since that time, um, Luke's group and our group, we've kind of had to defend our work saying – well, that wasn't really the goal, wasn't to compare it to a number, another time of day. What we saw was an opportunity, it, it, basically an eight-hour period where most people are fasting. Can you feed before that to have an opportunity to stay in muscle protein synthesis um, ranges and, and potentially help with whatever metabolism and recovery or next-day performance? Um, but since that time, we've we're just trying to publish our first paper looking at night versus day. Uh, there are two or three other papers that have come out this last two years on taking it pre-sleep versus daytime. So they equated for protein intake in both groups. Um, and they're actually not showing any differences in those particular studies as long as protein intake for the day was met. And I think that's pretty consistent message with all the timing information that I'm coming across is like, number one thing, get your needs in for the whole day. Once that's met, then maybe these nuanced other timings make a bigger difference. But to me, it clearly is an opportunity when people are hungry. You probably have a benefit. You won't have a negative. Um, and and why not, basically? Why not try to eat pre-sleep? Gotcha. Now, yeah. w- oh, go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say, it's also a good point that if you go outside of the fitness realm a little bit, and I look at just more general population and when – most people tend to overeat it and there's some data to support this too it's in the evening so if you can give them something that's bumping up their total amount of protein intake maybe there's some overnight effects um maybe you get some satiety effects from it too you don't have as much of a deleterious effects if they're looking at body comp you know just from a total caloric standpoint that may be very beneficial too what are your thoughts on that yeah you know that's a great point and there's a there's a 2004 paper from uh, Waller, which which we read extensively, and it was um, 
it, it wasn't in athletes. It wasn't in, you know, super fit individuals. So we have to sort of take it with a grain of salt and how it applies. But what I liked from it was the design and they had, uh, they had folks and they knew it. They, they had their dinner, which was controlled in terms of they measured everything that they ate. And then one group was allowed to have cereal later yeah. at night, and the other yep. group was not. And it was a cereal snack. So it was cereal and milk and they knew they could get it and be, and they didn't really go into the psychology of that, but I would, I think that that's probably the major player here is yep. simply going to dinner and knowing you have a, you're, you can eat again later. They didn't overeat at that dinner meal. And so over the course of that study, those people who had the cereal group actually improved body composition and, and it was a, a lower calorie intake is the people who adhered to this whole program had a, um, better outcomes because they knew they could have something before bed. Yeah, I find that just fascinating too because now you you throw the psychology part into it with the physiology and it gets much more complex. But having something like that, I think from you know possibly a physically and a psychology reward, I think about that a lot with people setting up you know diets and everything else. You know, just you know from compliance to everything else. And I think a lot of times in fitness we tend to throw that out and just be like, ah, oh, just be suck it up, just be more hardcore and it'll work. <laughs> like, well, yeah, but you got to look at the population you're dealing with too. Yeah. yeah, without a doubt. I've seen the cross training and in all the nutrition work, like, yeah, just because like you're good at it and that's what you do, you can't just put that on somebody else. Like, I think yeah. the best analogy I've heard is if you get a novice person to weight training, you're not going to have them come in and try to deadlift what you do. You have to ease them into it and teach them how to do it and give them baby steps and weights that kind of progress up over time. And same thing with nutrition. If you just, even with night feeding, like seems like an easy thing probably for all of us to handle if that's what you want to do. Cause obviously there's many ways to skin a cat, so to speak, if, uh, you know, depending on your goals, but not everyone wants to do that. And so you need to figure out, you know, psychologically what someone's going to adhere to is going to be far more beneficial. Okay. I have two more questions before we wind down. Just quickly, I this, the things I want to know, and maybe listeners as well. Um, and I'll just let you riff on these two things, uh, Doctor Ormsby. But number one, um, why are we hungry before bed? Why why does that happen? Why do people get hungry before they go to bed? And the number uh, the other one is just try to hit some pay dirt for listeners. Is what's your optimal number of meals over a twenty four hour period? <laughs> okay. Um, so we'll start with the one, the first one, why, why, why do people get hungry before bed? Uh, the short answer is, man, that's so complicated. I don't know, <laughs> but the, 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 uh, I guess if we can get into some of that, the clearly there are some satiety differences at night. The, some of the original work, like in the early nineties, and we never really talked about it, but there is a reason people were afraid of eating at night. Um, our metabolism slows at night. And so like in 1994, uh, Roman published a paper that was really neat. They gave the same meal, same calorie dose. I think it was almost 600 calories. And they gave that at like 9 a.m., one in the afternoon or late at night. And the same exact meal composition at each time influenced the thermic effect of food differently. Mm -hmm. And so essentially, um, if you had that same big meal late at night, you handled it worse. Your, your insulin sensitivity was worse at, at night. Mm -hmm. There was, uh, uh, there was certainly a satiety change at that period. So, um, 
and, and really the metabolism was down. And so basically that study showed a big meal late at nights handled worse. Don't do it. Um, and I think that that's, that's pretty important to, to get at is the why piece. So yes, satiety's down. A number of studies have followed up on that one that showed the people not because satiety is down. If you give people like free access to a buffet, they, they eat more at that, at that particular meal. And some of that's hormonal, you know, with the, this, the fluctuations that are going on, um, not only with the, the big players, PPY and the grounds and the leptins and some things that are shifting around at that time point. But um, I also think there's a psychological, I think people are bored. I think that, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out something to do uh, to, to occupy their time while they're Netflixing. Um, and, and, I, and I think that there's really an opportunity there to say, you're hungry anyway, let's just give you something that might actually help you at this point. So mm-hmm. that's kind of my my short answer there's certainly there's more physiology behind it than than i'm describing there but there's uh with our obese clients there's certainly a huge psychological push there with our athlete um research there is a thought of preparing for the next day and so i probably wraps into psychological hunger versus physiological um uh hunger and so i think that those things are always battling each other um, for, for us on this call, I mean, I think we're all probably inherently a little bit OCD with what we eat. Just, we all have our own things and everybody is probably hyper-focused on eating to some extent. So you guys probably know more than anybody at that period of time. Um, you can, you can certainly get hungry. So, so that's my answer to number one. Number two, what'd you say? Optimal number of meals. Now, some of my work with uh, Dr. Arciero, he's the lead on all these studies. He does a lot of work with um, what's called the PRIZE program. And the PRIZE program is an acronym for like uh, protein is the P, resistance exercise is the R, interval training, stretching and yoga, and endurance for all the letters of PRIZE. And in those uh, plans, the protein is something, a term he coined called protein pacing, which is essentially eating very frequently every three to four hours, having a protein dose that's at least 20 grams, particularly if you're younger and, and more if you're older, um, to, to try to just continue to spike MPS throughout the, throughout the day to have these, um, optimal benefits for muscle, probably optimal benefits for satiety and, and hunger. And then also, um, now that we know, Protein seems to be also lipolytic, not just something that helps grow muscle. Um, we're seeing in those studies, and we've done a handful of them now, that, that the optimal dose is that, where there people are eating four to six meals a day um, in those particular studies. And they're by the way, they're not well-trained individuals. They are training through that, but they're starting from nothing usually mm-hmm. and then adding um, all of that training into their sessions, which is typically four days a week of, of exercise. So... I would say four to six. I've always been the sixth person because I'm hungry all the time. I think uh, you guys, particularly Phil, sounds like you are as well, or at least you just get it in all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but I don't. There's so many ways to do it, Mike. I know you're um, maybe going to talk more about intermittent fasting. That's just not a strategy that works for me, because yeah. it's yeah. But that's okay. There's so many ways to do this and do oh, it yeah. well. I mean, it just for for me and the research that I deal with daily. It's multiple meals that are protein centric, and the the people the naysayers who are like, "Now nah, the data doesn't support that." They're showing multiple meals that are mixed macronutrient, not protein dominant meals six times a day. Yeah. 
Um, and so there's a big difference there in how that plays out. And uh, to my knowledge, there's only a few researchers looking at the protein-centric meals multiple times a day. And Paul Arciero is kind of leading the way in that in that area. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's good stuff. Right, we are just about out of time. So I wanted to thank you, Mike, for being on. That is good stuff. My yeah, pleasure. Thank you so much. Great. That's awesome information. Great to chat with you guys. Hope we can do it again. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's like you said, there's a lot, whether mechanisms or, you know, just gold nuggets. I mean, there are so many questions that go into this uh, sort of daily timing issue. Um, yeah, we'll probably pester you some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think just keep it simple. I mean, I, I get bogged down in these nuances because I love it, but they're, like I said earlier, like hit your target goals for the day and just figure out how you get that in in the total day and then these nuanced things work work their way out and then the more elite you are probably the more it matters right on all right well we'll see everyone next week thanks for joining us all right bye hey listeners have you seen the store at ironradio.org there are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.